Towards the end of the first century AD and several decades after the death of Jesus, a man by the name of John, an early follower of Jesus, finds himself, finds himself exiled on an island called Patmos. He's there for his belief in Christ. He's basically sent there to live out the remaining of his days. He's an old man at this point and just to, to live alone and die alone in exile on Patmos. Now, you have to put yourself in his shoes at this point because he looks out at the world and still sees suffering and heartache and brokenness. He sees that he's exiled for his faith in Jesus. Now he simultaneously believes that Christ is at the right hand of the Father, that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he remembers the words of Jesus where he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he believes that all authority is in Jesus. He believes Jesus is the King, Nevertheless, at the end of the first century, several decades after the death of Jesus, he's alone, in exile, an old man sent to die. Rome rules the day Caesar is on the throne, and many of the first followers of Jesus have already died. He knows that James was killed by Herod. He knows that doubting Thomas stopped doubting and became a believer but he was speared to death in a far-off land for the testimony of Jesus. He knows that Paul, the apostle, beheaded by Rome. He's heard stories of Bartholomew, the disciple of the Lord, being tortured, being skinned alive and killed for his faith in Jesus. And he certainly heard about what they did to Peter, how he was nailed to a cross like the Lord and fixed upside down. And he looks out at the world and sees death and turmoil and Rome being in charge. And you could kind of imagine there might be sort of this incongruency that he sees with what he believes about Christ and what is taking place in the world. Now again, put yourself in his shoes. You may not be worried about those types of things, but you still have angst and existential crisis over all kinds of things. There's wars and the economy and the advancement of AI and corruption And you see pictures on TV of of children that don't have enough food to eat. And when you look out, there's this feeling that's like, yes, Lord, I believe you are enthroned and you are king. But sometimes it's, it's, it's difficult to see how that's working down here below. And what John needs and what you need, what all of us need, is a vision of the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of the Revelation, chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near." In this series, we are going to be looking at the first portion of the book of Revelation, which deals specifically with seven words that Jesus gives to seven churches. These seven churches are in the region of Asia Minor, and Christ loves these churches, and with kind of persecution beginning to bubble up, he's going to give them some words, words of warning and encouragement. And so first and foremost, the book of Revelation is a word to these seven churches. 
As we go through this book, the other thing you have to be aware of is that Revelation, as many of you know, is filled with signs and symbols. And some of them are easy to figure out because the text will actually explicitly say what they are, but some of them are are quite difficult to decipher and to interpret. But know that every one of these signs and symbols has like a whole world of meaning. And so we won't have time to tackle every last thing as we go through it. And you can kind of dig deeper in, in small groups or in your own personal study, but the book is loaded with these signs and symbols. Another important note is that oftentimes when we approach the book of Revelation, we approach it as a scary book, uh, especially d- depending upon the kind of church tradition you grew up in. There are some sort of church traditions and cultures where Revelation was, was the book you used to scare people, like scare people, especially like kids into behaving. It was like, man, do you know what's going to happen? This can happen, this can happen. And there was movies that just scared you. And so some of you really grew up like, you know, you were a good Christian. You, you did your faithful Bible reading plan. It started in January and you got all the way to Jude, second to last book. God's Revelation, not going to read that book. Now, if you approach, if you are a Christian and you approach the book of Revelation with a posture of fear, just know that you're doing it wrong. Revelation is the great book of hope. It is written to Christians who are about to face persecution and this is the book they clung to. This was the great hope that Christ was giving to them. So what, whatever's going on, if you are a believer and it's scary, then know that we're not getting the full picture of what this book is trying to do. And that leads us to the first word of the book of Revelation, which is incredibly important for understanding the whole book. The book itself is a revelation. Now there's a problem with that because when you think of revelation, you think about maybe like some future prophecy about the future and the book of Revelation will have stuff to say about the future and have prophecy in it. But revelation in and of itself doesn't necessarily point in that direction. The word in Greek for revelation is apocalypsis. What does that sound like? Apocalypse, which actually doesn't help us because when you think of apocalypse, what do you think of? Bad news. A revelation is good news for you. It's good news. So when we think of apocalypse, you think of like post-apocalyptic movie or something like that. But apocalypsis in Greek just means the unveiling. It means the unveiling of something. And this is incredibly important. What is taking place in the book of Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It is what is presently true. Yes, Revelation will say things about the future, but primarily it's saying this is what is presently true. When you look out at the world and you see suffering and evil and injustice, You have to have eyes to see that even in the midst of that, Christ is actually king. But you have to have the eyes to see. And what Revelation does, it's the great unveiling of what is taking place behind the scenes. Because we're modern people, we kind of believe that what is taking place in the material world is all that's truly taking place. But you have to have eyes to see the unveiling of what Christ is actually doing in the world. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So the first part is a reminder of the context. This last book of the Bible is is a letter written to seven churches in a specific region. And then it goes on to say, grace to you and peace, from him who is and who was and who is to come. 
Now, one of the things about Revelation that you'll need to understand is that the signs and symbols and phrases, the, the key to understanding them is clearly the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. But also, sometimes these words, phrases, signs, and symbols not only have a, a primary resonance with the Jewish world, but they'll be like a secondary, lighter resonance with the Roman world. And this is important because Rome is in charge. Caesar's on the throne. And the empire has propaganda. The empire wants you to believe Caesar is Lord, the gods and goddesses of Rome, they are whom you ought to serve. And so oftentimes the book of Revelation will do slight digs at the propaganda of the empire. It's sort of like this this anti-propaganda messaging. And there might be already one right here. For example, the phrase, from him who is and who was and who is to come, might also be sort of this little dig at the propaganda of the day. We know that at this time, one of the phrases that was used for Zeus, the god Zeus, was that Zeus was the one who was and is and is to come. So the first Christians might be saying something like, oh, you think this, this, this belongs to Zeus? He's the one who was and is and, and is coming. No, no, no. That title belongs to Christ. He is the one who was and is and is to come. But even if that's not there, even if that subtle dig is not there, there's something more important going on. Christ identifies himself as the one who is. And in Greek, there's, there's two words that are used at that point, ha-on. And that might not sound like a big deal, but for a Jewish reader steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures, and especially the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, ha-on would stick out. Why? Because way back in the book of Exodus, God the God of Israel, reveals himself to a man named Moses in a burning bush. And some of you might be familiar with with the, the event where Moses is like, what's your name? What do I tell the people? And the voice from the burning bush says, I am that I am. Now, the Greek translation of that Hebrew, which was what people were reading at this day, for I am that I am, said ego emi, which means I am, and then ha on. So, don't get lost in all the Greek or the grammar or the syntax or any of that stuff. Just know that that ha-on phrase is the word and phrase that's adopted by Jesus to describe himself. In other words, we're not dealing just with a, a normal man. This is the I am, the voice from the bush that was burning and not consumed from centuries before. This is Christ. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Now, this phrase, firstborn on the dead, is very interesting. One, because it's almost like it has built-in tension. When you think of something being born, you think of life, right? The opposite of being born on the other end is death. So when you think of something being born, you think of life. But this is an image of somebody being born, the life comes out of death. It's a very interesting image. But there's more going on. In order to understand the image firstborn of the dead, we have to do some kind of readjustments to our understanding of time. When modern people think about time, we primarily think about it through an individual lens. We think about this life, and if you are a believer of some sort of religious structure, you talk about the afterlife. If you're an atheist, you, don't, you just would talk about this life. 
But there's this life and then there's an afterlife. And it's very much focused on like what happens to us. In the Jewish understanding of time, the world was split into two major categories, the present age and then the age to come. The present age is called the Olam Hazeh, and it's the present evil age with suffering and you know, corrupt leaders and all the things that go along with it. But the age to come, the Olam Haba, is the age where Messiah would reign. And in the age to come, the Olam Haba, a number of things would occur. There would be forgiveness of sins. There would be the defeat of evil. And maybe most importantly, there was to be a resurrection of all who were faithful. So, no resurrection in the present age. Resurrection is in the age to come, the Olam Haba. And God would resurrect all of his faithful people. So what happens in the death and resurrection of Jesus? You have something that was reserved for the Olam Haba, the age to come, happening in the Olam Hazeh, the present evil age. It's as if God's future reality is inbreaking into the present. Resurrection was reserved for the next age. But in Christ, part of God's future comes into the present, and therefore Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. And firstborn implies that there will be others. So what's going on? In Christ, you get a glimpse. You get like a first level observation in Christ of what will happen to all of God's people. God's people will all be resurrected. They will all be restored. Justice will be done throughout the land. Evil will be destroyed. And so, in a weird way, part of the Olam Haba is taking place in the Olam Hazeh. The Olam Hazeh, the present age with evil and suffering. Christ is the firstborn from the dead. And then this, you gotta, like, the ending is, this is on another level. You just read over it real quick and not stop and slow down. Jesus is said to be the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, do you believe that? Don't be quick to answer. Don't just do like the Christian thing. Be like, yes, of course. This is the heart of the book of Revelation. Jesus is currently and presently the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the ruler of all the rulers. Do you believe it? Do you doubt it? Does sometimes it feel... Like, that's not true. When you look out at the world and you see all the problems, the suffering and the pain, doesn't it sometimes feel as if like, is he? It sure like, looks, looks like these guys are running the show. But this is the heart of the book of Revelation. Currently, right now, Christ is the ruler of all the rulers of the earth. But you have to have eyes to see it. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. To him who loves us. Okay, what did we just read? Christ is the ruler of all rulers. Picture this, like a little thought experiment. Let's say there is some human came and he's born on earth and he defeats all the rulers of the earth. He is the ruler of rulers. All the other kings, they're subject to him. This guy is the top, the ruler of rulers. And he loves you. Would that change how you live? If the ruler of rulers loved you? What would, what would earn that? What could you do that this person would love you? 
Nevertheless, that's the claim of the book of Revelation. That the one who was and is and is to come, the one who is ruler of all the kings of the earth, loves you. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now keep this image in your head of the one coming in the clouds. We'll return to that later. But I want to focus on this next line. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. This is interesting because... Um, did all the tribes of the earth, like every eye, every human, all the tribes of the earth, uh, did they all pierce Jesus? Like in one sense, no. From a historical perspective, there was people there that crucified Jesus. But in another sense, John is saying, it's like, no, Christ is also the one who dies for the sins of the world. And so this piercing, the the cross, this is the, the result of the sum total of human sin and wickedness. Therefore, It's not just like the people who were historically there. There will come a day when every eye will see the resurrected Christ, even those who pierce them, even those who are no longer alive. Some of those people aren't even alive when John's writing this. Everyone will see him on that day. And when you see the coming of the Son of God, you will either rejoice for he loves you or you will behold and you will wail on account of him. That's heavy. Verse eight, I am the alpha and the omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last word of the Greek alphabet. So it's like, I am the A and the Z. But don't think Jesus is saying like, I'm the first person and I'll be like the last person to ever live. Like I was born here and I'll be the last person alive. First and the last is speaking about like universal totality. He is the first and the last. He is the alpha and the omega, who was, who is to come. And then it ends with the almighty, which is interesting. This might be another dig at sort of the propaganda of the empire. So one of the phrases that the Caesars of the day would use for themselves is the word autocrator, and it means like master of oneself or ruler of oneself. You can hear the, the prefix in autocrator, auto, like automatic, automatic ruler, But what Christ claims about himself is not that he's the ruler over his own house. He is the ponta crator in Greek almighty. Ponta being all. He is the all ruler, the ruler of rulers. So Caesar might be the autocrator, but Christ is the ponta crator, the all ruler. Everyone is subject to him. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. This is the context that we've already dealt with. This is a, a book that's Genre-wise is, is, an, is a letter, it's apocalyptic literature, but it's also a letter that's written to these seven churches in these seven locations. And then we get the image of the resurrected Son of God. Then I turned 
to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with the long robe and with the golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So when the world seems like it's in chaos, and it seems like things can't possibly be going to pine, it seems as if Jesus is not the ruler of all the kings of the earth, you have to have a vision for the resurrected Son of God. And Jesus shows up and John turns and beholds the glory. And he sees a number of things. First, it says he comes like the Son of Man. And remember, just a minute ago, we talked about how he was coming in the clouds. And if you have those two phrases, the Son of Man and the phrase coming in the clouds, a reader of the Hebrew Scriptures would immediately go to the book of Daniel. Specifically, Daniel chapter 7, because in Daniel chapter 7, there is one like the Son of Man who comes in the clouds. And so John is using those two images to bring you back to the book of Daniel. Now, what's fascinating about this is that Daniel is writing as a man in exile. The Babylonians have come in, they've destroyed the temple, they've destroyed Jerusalem, they've taken God's people captive, and Daniel is a part of this exile. So follow this. There's a man in exile. His people and his country have been destroyed, and it looks as if his God, the God of Israel, is not in control because his people and his kingdom are destroyed and he's in exile. And so God sends this one in exile a vision. This is exactly what's occurring to John. Now, this is what Daniel 7 records. It's a description of the one who comes in the clouds like the Son of Man. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. The Ancient of Days is, is, is God on the throne, and now all of a sudden, next to God on the throne, comes this other individual. Verse 14, it says, And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So you get this image of the Son of Man who comes in the cloud, and he's given everything, all dominion. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. You might see earthly kingdoms fall, but this representative is a ruler of all the kings of the earth, and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will serve him. And what Revelation is doing is saying, you see this Jesus? That's who Daniel's talking about. But it goes even further because that individual approaches the throne of God, the Ancient of Days. Now listen to the description of the Ancient of Days. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. Uh, hair like wool, white like snow, robe, fiery flames. Does this sound familiar? This was the exact same images that were applied to Jesus in Revelation. 
So what's going on? This is important. You don't want to collapse Jesus, the son, into the person of the father. They're different. But what John is doing in Revelation is he describes Jesus as the one who's receiving all the kingdoms of this earth. But then he also uses the very images that are upon the ancient of days, God, and maps those out upon the son. It's almost as if he's saying, yes, this Jesus is the son of man who sits at the right hand of the father. But when you see the son, you are seeing the very images of the father. Or maybe put it another way that might sound familiar. When you see the son, you also see the father. The son is the imprint, the expressed image of God the father. Now there's some more images and they're underlined. Verse 15 says, His feet were like burnished bronze refining a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. So uh, when Jesus speaks, this isn't sort of like the, hello, hey Mary, it's me, Jesus. This is a voice that sounds like rushing waters coming to a confluence of many waters coming forward, and there's a giant thunderous roar. Which is enough of a description, but again, you have to know that all of these images are rooted in the Old Testament. So who is the one who has a voice over the waters? Who is the one who speaks and his voice is like the roar of many waters? Ezekiel 43, one through two. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. When God comes, you hear the sound of many waters and his glory is so great that it says, the earth is now shining. Now this is easy to miss. It's not the earth's glory that's shining. It's God's glory is so great that it's like it's being reflected from the earth. The earth is now shining with the glory of God. The one who comes with the voice of many waters. Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. So when John describes Jesus, what does he want you to think when he says, the voice is like the voice of the roar of many waters? In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now there might be another dig at sort of the rhetoric of the empire here. We know that many, not all, but some of at least, the Caesars of Rome claimed to be divine in one way or another. Sometimes they would claim divinity. Sometimes they would say, my father became a god. Well, if your father became a god, what does that make you? A son of God. Or sometimes they would say their children have been deified. Oftentimes on Roman coins in Latin, they would be written uh, divifilius, which is son of God. And so there's this sort of kind of state propaganda that tells you your leaders are like gods. One of the things they would do, and there's several coins that did this, is they would depict a member of the royal house surrounded by seven stars. And so this is a coin minted in 82 and 83 AD. This is the Emperor Domitian's son. And the son is sitting on the sphere and he's surrounded by the seven stars. It was said of a Caesar Augustus that when he died, he ascended to the stars and he took his place among the gods. 
And so this is rich symbolism that is communicating in one way or another that the royal house is divine. They're like gods. And so Domitian's son is surrounded by the seven stars. But Jesus Christ, the son of the father, he's not surrounded by the stars. He holds them in his hands. You might have ascended to take your place among the gods. Christ holds all rulers and all authority in his hand. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That's an image, right? Out of his mouth is a giant sword sharpened on both ends. Now think about this. This very Jesus is the Jesus who spoke all of creation into existence. The speech of the Son of God creates reality. God speaks the universe into existence. By his word, God creates the world. And also you need to know that without a physical sword, just by his words, Christ can slay all of his enemies. The same voice that spoke the world into existence is the same voice that, like a double-edged sword, could slay all of his enemies. This is the power and might of the one being depicted. And then his face is shining like the sun in full strength. Do you remember when God came and it was like the roar of many waters and his glory was so great that the earth was reflecting that glory? Now you have an image of the Son of God whose voice is like the many waters. He holds the seven stars. Out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And if you look at his face, you'd have to close your eyes because it's like the sun shining in full strength. What John is doing is using ancient signs and symbols to communicate to you the greatest of all possible beings. This is using like ancient motifs, standards, themes, signs, and symbols to, to get you to picture the greatest and most powerful of all beings. Now, here's the thing. If you were to encounter this being, what do you think your reaction would be? You know, because, you know, sometimes in the church world, we're so, how do I say? Mm. Fluffy, touchy-feely, like, if Jesus were to come into the room, I would run to him and I would give him a hug because he's been a friend to me all the days of my life. And yes, I too, because Jesus is my homeboy, would run to him, for he is gentle and kind. And yes, there's a sense in which that is all true. But there's also a sense in which you have to understand, if you were to see the unveiled, undiluted glory of the resurrection of the Son of God, you would see him coming with the voice of many waters and to look at him would be looking like the sun shining in its full power. Do you know what you would do if he showed up in this power and glory? I'll tell you what you do. This is what would happen. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You would fall down as if dead. Christ is so filled with life that whatever life you have in comparison to that, it would be as if you are dead. 
Whatever life you have, whatever finite version of life you have, it is so small and insignificant to the author and source of all that we call life, it would be an infinite distance and your life is like falling down dead. But then, some of the most important words of all Scripture. Because it said, He laid His right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So you fall down dead. But then the good Lord puts his hand on you and says, fear not. But not fear not, like, fear not because there's no real problems in the world. Not Fear not because there's not really evil and suffering in the world. It's all an illusion. It's not fear not because you're so brave and courageous. And it's not fear not because you just need to focus on the positive things and not look at the negative. There is a grounds for the command to fear not. And what is the grounds? I am the first and the last. Christ says, I am the living one. I died. I am alive forevermore. And most importantly, I have the keys of death in Hades. So the grounds for not having fear is the person and accomplishment of Christ. This image is awesome. I have the keys of death and Hades. Is there any more epic language than that? I have the keys of death and Hades. So it's like a... We all will have to to die one day. We all get thrown into the dungeon of death. And the dungeon of death is a forever life sentence type of thing. But Christ is saying, no, 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 no. You have to understand, before you... I went into the dungeon of death. I broke out of the dungeon of death. It could not hold me. It could not contain me. And I disarmed the evil guard. I disarmed the strong man. And now I have the keys of death and Hades. So even if you die, even if you get thrown into the dungeon of death, Christ says, I have the keys. I will not leave you. I will not abandon you. Even if you get thrown into the dungeon of death, I will come for you. I will unlock the door. I went there first. I broke out. I disarmed the strong man. I disarmed the guard. I have the keys. And then it goes on in verse 19 and in chapter 1 with just a kind of a repetition of the context. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars and the angels of the seven churches and the seven, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In other words, Christ is saying all these sevens are about the seven churches that this is going to be written to. But I want to return to this image. I had the keys of death and Hades. Death and Hades is like the place of the dead. So it's like death and the, the, the dungeon of death. I have the keys. Now, why is that so important? Especially to churches that are facing persecution. Because death is always like the threat that the empire could use against the Christians. We will kill you. We will kill your loved ones. And in the ancient world, that was an irreversible event. If you got thrown into the dungeon of debt, like in the ancient world, there's no coming out of it. You went there and there's no, there's, you're done. 
And so the empire uses the, the fear of death to keep you in line. And so what Christ is saying to these people is, he's not saying there's not evil in the world, there's not suffering, there's not death, there's not a lot of bad things that can happen to you. He's presupposing it, but he's saying to you, even if you die, I will come for you. You will not be left in the dungeon of death. Now, when you understand that, it changes how you live. When you understand that death will not have the final word, that death never gets the last word, that Christ is always the last and final word. word. It changes how, how you live. changes how you interact with the world. I'll show you how this works. Um, last week was the nine-year anniversary of the martyrdom of 21 Coptic Christians. Um, you might not remember it, but when I show you this image, it'll come back to your mind. ISIS had kidnapped 21 Christian men and treated them horrifically and given them a chance to deny Christ, to recant Christ. And if they didn't, then they were one by one executed and all 21 of the men refused to deny Christ and it was recorded and uploaded to the internet, each one dying for their faith in Christ. Their throats were slit. Now, that doesn't make sense unless those men believe that the worst you can do to me is send me to the place that Christ has freed me from. It, it doesn't make sense. Like you could try to, to be like, oh, look how brave they are. Look, None of it makes sense unless you believe that someone has destroyed the walls of the dungeon and has the keys to set you free. And so the Bible presupposes evil like this. It's telling the seven churches persecution will happen. It presupposes evil and suffering, but it also says that in the midst of that, take heart because Christ has overcome the world. And so in those types of moments, you know that even in death, we win. Even if I die, I win. Because in death, Christ was victorious. He is the firstborn of the dead. Just as God the Father raised him, so he shall raise me. Now, what's fascinating about that event is that after this, um, there was many interviews done with family members because these men were fathers. They were husbands. And so many interviews were done. You can look at this online. You can Google it, YouTube. Many interviews were done subsequent to the mothers of these young men, the wives, the children, and the people in this region, they're just so different from us in that they sort of presuppose you will suffer for Christ. Like we're so, so sheltered and stuff, like it can shock our systems when stuff like this happens. But they raise their families knowing when you become a Christian, you are signing up to suffer for Christ. It's just a reality of the world. And so when you hear these interviews, it, it's, it's incredible. You'll hear a wife say, like, what, what do you want to say to these men that did this to your husband? They caused me so much pain. They caused me so much hurt. You don't know how much I've cried, but I pray that God would forgive you and you'd come to know his son. And then you would hear them in the midst of sadness, almost kind of like pick up with a bit of joy and they would go, I am so proud to be a martyr's wife. 
I am so proud that my husband died for Christ. Everywhere I go, everyone I meet, I tell them I'm a martyr's wife. I'm a martyr's wife. Then they interview another wife and they say, we're so proud of, of dad. And the kids are right there and they say, my kids will grow up being filled with pride. They know their dad died for Christ. It's like, a, you, you feel this, it's a different world. We have pride. I tell everyone, I'm a martyr's wife. The kids are proud. Their dad was faithful to the very end. Then there's interviews with the mothers. And there was this one in particular that I watched many years ago, but it was, it was so moving. Um, in the video that was put up online, they called the Christians the people of the cross. And as they mocked them, they say like, what's gonna happen to the people of the cross? And then they ask them to deny Christ. And if they didn't, then they, they slit their throats. But what the men would do is before they died, they cried out to Jesus. And in the video, it's like, look what happens to the people of the cross. But then this mom of one of the men who died goes, they wanted to do evil to us, but they didn't know that in doing evil to us, they gave us great good. Because I got to see my son and I saw that as the blade was going to his throat, the last thing that he did was put the name of Christ on his lips. And so what they meant for evil was good because I saw my son cry out to Jesus with his last breath. So none of that makes any sense unless Christ has the keys to death and Hades. You have to understand this is central to Christian identity. We can be a fear not people, not because there's not evil, not because there's suffering. We presuppose all of that, but we can be a fear not people because the one who has the voice of many waters, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the one who was and who is and who is to come, the one who holds the seven stars, the one whose eyes are like fire, the ancient of days, that person puts our hand on us and says, fear not. Even if you go unto death, I will come for you. I will free you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You will not be abandoned. And when you hold to that, man, you can live like faithful Christians. You just interact with the world differently. Now still you might be saying, well, why is there... I get that Christ is ruling and reigning, but if he is really the ruler of all the rulers, why, why is there still all this evil and suffering? Why do those people have to die? Couldn't he save those people so those, those families don't experience the, that type of loss? Well, he could. But he's a king not like other kings. Because what do normal kings do when there's treason? What does the normal captain of the ship do when there's mutiny at sea? You throw the guy overboard. You kill the one who's committed treason against the, the king. And here's the hard truth that's so offensive to the modern ear. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We're all guilty of treason. And if Christ was a king just like any other king, we'd be done with. We'd be in the dungeon. We'd be in the dungeon of death. But Christ is a different type of king. He is patient he is gracious. He is loving. And you live in a time where he is extending his patience in order that men and women might come to repentance. You live in the Olam Hazeh, the present evil age, 
where yes, there's suffering, but if you are in Christ, you've experienced now in the present a part of the Olam Haba. You know the King, you know Jesus, you know his grace, you know his forgiveness, you have his spirit. But just because part of that future reality has come into the present doesn't mean those present realities go away. There is evil and there is suffering because Christ is being patient so that as many would come to repentance would come to repentance. And thank God for that because if he didn't have patience with you, guess where you'd be? In the dungeon of death, locked away. So Christians are called to live faithfully in the present, in the midst of suffering and evil, thanking God that he drew them graciously into his kingdom, but also telling the world that if you have eyes to see, there is a judge and a king who will bring justice to this world, but is also loving and patient and gracious and drawing all people to himself. Now, um, Imagine that message for the first churches 2,000 years ago, those seven churches in Asia Minor. Like persecution starting to break out and you believe that this Jewish man in the first century crucified in Jerusalem, that he's actually the ruler of all rulers. Like, do you know how hard, (laughs) how difficult would that be to believe? Like, Like in Asia Minor, this whole region, you look around, well, how many of us are there? Well, there's about seven, eight, nine, 10 of these churches well, how many people do they got? 20 here, 30 here, 40 here. So you're this tiny little people group on the face of the earth and you're supposed to believe that the one you worship, the crucified Messiah, is the ruler of all rulers. You know, that's difficult. Which should say, how blessed are we that we have 2,000 years of history to demonstrate that that crucified man was indeed the world's true ruler. And for 2,000 years, you have a history of the conquering lion who is the lamb from the tribe of Judah, conquering the hearts of countless men and women throughout the centuries. There are hundreds of millions of people who swear allegiance to that man. There are hundreds of millions of people who say, I love him because he first loved me. There are millions of people who would gladly and joyfully lay down their life for him. You have 2,000 years to see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation come to acknowledge him as king. 2,000 years of the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. And right now as we speak, you need to know Multitudes are coming to Christ. You may not see it because like, oh, in my community, in my culture, I'm not seeing it. Like the stats are like clear on this. It's like every 10 seconds, someone else becomes a Christian. You follow this, just pause. It's like, there's another one. There's another heart for Christ. There's another person saved because God was patient in his mercy. There's another one. And it just goes on and on and on. So how blessed are we that we get to live with this. And so sometimes when you begin to, to doubt and you look out at the world, it's like, man, what's going on? No, that there is a king who comes with the roar of many waters, the alpha and omega, the first and the last. The would-be rulers of this world claim to sit among the stars. Christ holds the stars in his hands. The would-be rulers of this world claim to be autocrators, rulers of their own house. Christ is the pontocrator, the ruler over all. 
The corrupt rulers of this world can threaten you with dungeons or prisons or death, but Christ holds the keys to death and Hades. Even in death, the Christian wins. His victory is our victory. And when you understand that, you can begin to be a fear-not type of person. And trust me, in our culture right now, we need a fear-not type of people to show the world that no matter what's going on, my king is on the throne. He is the ruler of all rulers. And when earthly rulers get out of line, guess what? They will give an account to him. No one gets away with anything. No ruler will get away with a thing. They will have to answer to Christ. And so for us, we say to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So as we walk through the book of Revelation, know that it presupposes evil and suffering in the world. But at the same time, it says, do not fear. And it's a command. Fear not. Why? Because Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the firstborn from the dead. I am alive forevermore. I have the keys. So Christian, be strong, be courageous, be bold. The ruler of all rulers loves you. To him who loves us, and has freed us and made us a kingdom of priests to his God. To him be all glory and power and dominion forever. Let's stand as we take communion.